welcome to episode 207 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of December 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Faden. Hello. Graham. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> and Will. Hello. I don't know what you're on about with that. <laughs> Censoring my diehard quotes, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Look, don't tell the audience that I told you not to say things and we had to re-record and I do editing. <laughs> don't spoil the magic. And also you've spoilt my joke about how, oh, isn't it a shame that we lost 3-0 to France or 3-1 or whatever, <laughs> and we're out of the World Cup now. Oh, I was, I was there in Paris. God, it was amazing. The wine <laughs> flowed. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows where we'll actually be, but that's my prediction, 3-1 to France. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Let's do some discoveries. Will, DNS Diag, what on earth is this? This story starts with a small anecdote, as you might expect. When I got my gigabit fiber symmetric connection installed, oh, don't you? Oh, yes. Here we go. Fuck off. Rubbing it in, now. you bastards. Uh, I was seeing a little bit of a slowdown um, on initial page load. <laughs> oh, did it only go to like <laughs> 0.3 of a millisecond? Well, you, you tend to notice these things when you know your internet connection is faster than the rest of the internet. And I was trying to work out what was going on. Like, go into a browser, open a page, and there was just this slight little slowdown. And I thought, is this my new ISP? filtering my DNS requests? Are they? Is there something weird going on? Is there a, a problem in my network setup that I haven't been aware of before because everything took so long? What's going on? Has your processor become the bottleneck? <laughs> well, <laughs> quite possibly. So I used the inspector in the browser to see what was going on. And one of the things that was going on, the thing that was taking a lot of the time was DNS resolution. So, okay, what what's going on? How do I find out which DNS server is causing the problems here? Is it my ISP? Is it one of the upstream ones? What's going on? So I looked for a tool which would allow me to compare and contrast various different DNS servers, all with the same lookup, all from the same test point, so I could rule out any sort of fluctuations elsewhere. And I found DNS Diag on GitHub. It's a pretty straightforward script. It's not very complicated, but it does abstract away all of the fiddly writing of scripts and stuff for you. It comes with a set of upstream DNS servers in a text file, so you can just use those, and you can easily add the ones that you want to put in there as well. You can issue a fairly straightforward look up and it will go away and fire off the request to all of these, I don't know, dozens and dozens of, of DNS servers, public DNS servers, upstream DNS servers, root DNS servers, and it will come back with a very nice table showing you which is the fastest, which is the slowest, where the slowdowns are, how many packets were dropped between you and that particular server, and the end result is what in theory is the most reliable DNS server for your connection. And so that helped me speed up my internet connection and just generally smooth things over. And it also saved me probably an hour or two of, of fiddling around writing scripts. So it's worth a try if you're doing something like what I am. Needless to say, you had the last laugh. <laughs> oh, I tried to install it. It didn't work. <laughs> oh, bloody Pip and Python. God, who'd use those languages? Me. Well, I'm surprised that you even did that failing, given that it's a BSD two-clause license. Ugh. Get it out of here. Jesus, I didn't realize that. <laughs> That's the kind of code I can do without, I'll have you know. It does sound very useful, though. It does. Yeah, I think I might have to try and get this to work when we're not recording. Failing, please don't <laughs> destroy your entire computer. Look, if I pip install a DNS tag and it breaks my microphone, maybe there's serious other issues going on. Well, you are using KDE, so oh, you never know. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, Graham, what is Z-Modem? I think you've pronounced it correctly as well. Um, Z-Modem, 
for those people who were around in the 80s and early 90s who used to use a modem to dial up bulletin board systems was a protocol for transferring files. This isn't that Z modem because it's spelled Z-I-Z-I modem. And it's it's basically a firmware for an ESP32 or an ESP8266, one of those little controllers with Wi-Fi on, that will connect to a serial port on, and I didn't put this in the notes so that you wouldn't, Call me out on it, an Amiga or a <laughs> 64. Until you got to Amiga, I thought you'd stolen this from Will. But no, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was beginning to think, that's why when he said Will in that sentence, I thought, oh, Will would use these, would he? Yeah. Basically, it bridges your Wi Fi connection to the serial port on an old computer with an old serial port. And it doesn't give you internet access because they're not up to running a TCP IP stack, although maybe the microcontroller is. But what it does do is it lets you access. Telnet and oh, there good. are lots of old <laughs> bulletin board systems still running on Telnet on the internet. So with this plugged into the back of your computer and the firmware flash to the microcontroller, you can open up your old term. It's called term on the Amiga, actually. Your terminal software, your dialing software, you can type in ATDT, which is the AT commands used to type in to dial. You put in the telnet address instead of a phone number, it will call up the telnet address. And it's exactly like accessing a bulletin board system, except for it's faster because it's over the internet, it's over Wi-Fi. Um, and it's a really way of cheaply, really, um, these controllers are cheap, the firmware is open source, getting some kind of connectivity from your old machine. And it's a good nostalgia trip for this time of year, I think, because I got my Commodore 64 at Christmas. I love it. It means you can watch ASCII Star Wars on your Omega then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could do that. And you can transfer files as well. If you need to get files to those machines, it's quite useful, although you're probably better off on the Omega using Parnet, which is another really neat project. Stupid question. Is this not like people like putting power stations with scatter cards online <laughs> when they really shouldn't? I don't know. I mean, the BBSs themselves are really, they're quite limited. I don't know. You can. It's pretty easy to install your own BBS on Linux, actually, and then kind of set up a proper file area for things that you do want to get access to. Obviously, because it's Telnet, they, it's it's text just transferred in the open. It's like the simplest thing. It's not even a protocol, really, when you look at it. Um, and that's why it works with just a terminal emulator, which back in those days is simply something that translated the bytes into characters on the screen. It's funny you bring up BBSs because there was a really good Hacker News link to a 11-year-old that was running a BBS back in the, I don't know, was it the early 90s or something like that? And uh, just reading that story was very nostalgic and cool. They were just ahead of me. So they'd all died out by the point where I got online. I think it was 97. But uh, it was kind of funny to hear all that stuff and uh, quite cool. Yeah. I like all that old sort of computer tech. Like that, there's a Raspberry Pi book, something like the computers that built Britain or something like that, where it's all these really obscure computers you've never heard of, or maybe you had one and uh, talking about all the history of stuff and all that type of thing. It's brilliant. So this doesn't have any LEDs on it or anything, but somebody's done a version of it where you can attach eight LEDs for the LEDs you typically find on an old modem and they'll flicker away <laughs> when you're transferring data, <laughs> which is good. There is something quite nostalgic about it at this time of year. Uh, about once a year, I used to check in on Arcade BBS, which is an old Acorn one, and just see what was going on. And that always seemed to happen around Christmas time for some reason. And then I think it finally went offline when Demon Internet went down uh, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, it disappeared and was never seen again, which is very sad. So it would be nice to tailnet into a few BBSs. I might might give this a go. I see you've suddenly added Knobcraft 
to the uh, show doc, Graham. What's going on here? As I say in the notes, I've added Knobcraft for the name alone. <laughs> <laughs> but no, oh, okay, so this is a bit synth geeky. In the world of hardware synths, you know how you have patches on them, they're the sounds that you can switch between and they, they play different sounds. There really is no standard way of getting those sounds off any of these synthesizers and storing them in a library. The piece of software for doing this is called a librarian. And despite the fact this kind of idea has been around for decades, there have been famous librarians like Soundiver on macOS that have been and gone. But there's nothing now except for a couple of expensive proprietary clunky things that can act as a librarian for synth sounds. And Knobcraft <laughs> is a badly named, maybe German, I don't know, Knobkraft, it would be. Or maybe I should say Knobkraft is an open source librarian for synths. It supports about 20 of them natively, but the most important thing is there's a really easy to use kind of Python backend for adding your own synths. And it's pretty simple if they're well documented. And it means it'll grab the sounds off your synths, it'll store them, it'll allow you to apply tags to them and push them back up to your synths as well. Um, because it's still pretty arcane in the world of hardware synths, these. Um, these patch storage and librarian solutions. Um, and it's brilliant. And it's probably the best of its kind. And it's open source and runs on Linux. That is pretty cool. I mean, I've been watching Look Mum No Computer with a uh, MIDI-controlled church organ. So uh, I've been solely getting more into this type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah. It's horrible to see things locked up in a, a proprietary piece of gear. Like, it's great to see proper open libraries talking to anything like God, and it really feels like the it, we were just talking about modems and MIDI. I don't know what it's something like thirty three, what thirty three thousand three hundred board or thirty three thousand board, and it still is now when you actually use the wired connection, and that's how the data is transferred from the synths. So this thing must have a load of error correction built into it because it just takes ages to even just send a few bytes backwards and forwards. But it does mean that if you pick up an old synth cheap synth from the 80s like a kwa k1 these things haven't been made for 30 years this will let you get patches off the internet and send it to the synth and make your own and save them back on your computer i hate to break it to you graham but the 80s is more like 40 years ago at this point oh god i'm just in denial <laughs> okay this episode is sponsored by linode go to linode.com slash late night linux support the show and get a hundred dollars free credit from their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. I've discovered Twitter Archive Parser. So if you are fleeing Twitter and you want to take your data with you, then you download this zip file. It takes about a day, and then they send you a link to it. And uh, you have to like authenticate loads of times, and it's really annoying. But anyway, you get this um, zip file. But when you open the HTML file that you get, there are a few issues with it. 
And so what Twitter archive parser does is converts the tweets to Markdown and also HTML with embedded images, videos, and links. It sorts the t.co URLs to proper URLs, and it can get the full-size images, and it sorts out your DMs. It just basically organizes the data in a much better way, a much more user-friendly way. And um, it takes, uh, I mean, for me, it took about half an hour with all the downloading of the images and everything. And it was a bit of a fuck about having to install the various Python shit to get it work, because it's basically just a Python script, but it depends on some other stuff that you need to get from pip, so you need to have pip installed and whatnot. But once I fucked about with all that, it was really straightforward, just let it go, gave it the various yeses that it needed, and suddenly I've got my Twitter data in a much more friendly way. I've used that as well. Ah, interesting. Did you also find it on onethingwell.org? I did not. I found it a couple of weeks before that, but I, I was very sly in that I didn't let anybody know that they should also download their data because I was worried that the download your data service might have imploded by the time the other, all the other people got on board. So I slyly did it a week before everybody else. All right. Well, I have dumped my data a few times over the years just in case from Twitter. But uh, yeah, I got it recently as well. But yeah, this one thing well.org is a site from Jack Mottram. And it was dead for ages, and I didn't even know it existed. But then it just popped up in my RSS reader. And that's because, uh, and this is one for real long-term listeners, even before this show started. When this show started, or just before, I got an OPML file from Paddy, from Linux Luddites. <laughs> and there was some crazy fucking shit in that, let me tell you, that I had to just unsubscribe from. But uh, this just popped up after ages of being dormant. And it's not all open source stuff, and it is for all different platforms. But as the name suggests, it's just a bunch of links to useful software. So there may well be further things from One Thing Well that we cover on this show in the uh, Discoveries segment. Failim, Silver Bullet. Well, my personal document note-taking is an absolute shambles. There used to be a sort of note-taking app in contact that kind of went the way, K-Notes, I think it was called, and it sort of died out. And I had a whole lot of their files saved, and they were just a mishmash because they had their own sort of markup in them. So I eventually stripped those out to be plain text files, and I thought, oh, I should use this point too. And then I made a mistake of going markdown slash restructured text, and I have a mix of both of those things where I quite know neither of the syntax properly. So it's just a shite show of text files everywhere. And I thought it's about time I built a proper document storage of all of my stuff. And I came across Silver Bullet. And it is quite an amazing project. It's a self-hosted JavaScript-based. Now, it has this horrible tool that builds it called Deno. I'm not entirely sure I understand how it works or the way it works, because I've only had a, a few hours on it. But it is a very, very well done very simple to install and it can if you use chromium say which i don't so i didn't get to try this it has a, a pwa a um i forget what it stands for progressive web app thank you that's the one uh so you can you can actually run it in your browser like that but to be honest it stores everything on the back end in actual markdown text files so as the guy who wrote the thing says if it goes away all it has is its own index keeping file and some data metadata stuff that is not a big deal isn't required you've always got your markdown so you never have to worry about stuff getting buried in you know even an open source project can have a 
peculiar file format that you can never get it out of unless you know how to build your own reader for that so it's really pretty it does markdown on the way so as you're typing stuff it can put the markdown in it can do things where it can change it back so you're, you don't have this two pane view and it's got things like these command modes where you can do these slash commands where you can take turn this into a table or turn it into a, a list or whatever there's templates available for it and there's a whole plugin architecture and it's really really nice very well done and I thought it was far too nice for me. And then I went looking to see if there was a Markdown plugin for Kate and I found one. So you should use marked up text. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm using. <laughs> so you discovered this, thought it was amazing. And then thought, no, there's got to be something in KDE that will do this for me. And then there was. Yes. <laughs> and I got to say, the Markdown part based in Kate is fantastic. And you should use this other thing and not what I'm doing because it's a silly idea, but I'm just... I don't know. It's that whole build process thing. I don't really know what it's doing because it, it creates a 110 megabyte file deno executable in a dot directory. And then the link to the actual wiki or whatever it is, Markdown utility itself, Silver Bullet, is just this text field that goes off to it. So I don't know whether it kind of pre-compiles it into the other binary or something. It all just looks really weird. And that's why I said, sure, I'll just use Kate. It'll be grand. <laughs> Allergic to nice things, essentially, is what the story is there. On to a bit of admin, then. First of all, thank you, everyone, who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support for more details. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that contains this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And you get some episodes early occasionally. And if you want to get in contact, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. The first one was from someone who I am going to say is anonymous. They did sign it, but uh, you'll see why I think they should remain anonymous when Phelan reads it now. <laughs> I'd like to add my two cents to your recent IBM having bought Red Hat discussion. By the way, big congrats on reaching 200. Thank you. My perception as an IBM employee, ah, yeah, I can see why you might have said that now, is similar to Will's. First of all, IBM seems to be struggling. Not that they would admit it, but you cannot deceive my cynical eye. They clearly fell asleep behind the wheel a while ago and now trying to catch up. But also, as far as Red Hat goes, it really seems to function as a completely separate company. Looks like they just let them do what they do and IBM benefits from using RHEL, OpenShift, etc. as much as they want. So hopefully, they won't ruin it for everybody. I think it would be a natural progression at this point if we slowly transition to Red Hat taking over the entire IBM. But this is not how corporations work, I guess. So the best we can hope for is when IBM dies a death by a thousand cuts, it won't take <laughs> Red Hat with it. Yeah. <laughs> mm, might be wishful thinking there, I think. Good wishful thinking, but yeah. But it's interesting to hear from an insider a completely anonymous insider. And I've totally deleted the emails, Red Hat Legal, so don't come after me. I don't <laughs> fucking know who it is. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting to hear that they kind of agree with the sort of outside perception that IBM was flagging. And, you know, we, we want Red Hat to kind of take over the IBM culture. We want the IBM culture to be more Red Hat-like and not the other way around. But so far from what I've seen, it feels like a slow kind of progression the other way to me so we got some feedback from nate who says in episode 199 will mentions binding the whisker menu to super key spacebar 
Probably the only thing I miss in XFCE that both GNOME and Plasma provide is the ability to hit the super key and just start typing because the menu has already opened. That is until I found the tiny little application K super key. All this program does is to omit a predefined key combination when the super key has been pressed without any other keys. The key combination that's omitted handily defaults to Alt and F1, which happens to be the default shortcut to open the XFCE application menu. This means that by starting K Super Key at the beginning of your session and mapping the Whisker menu to Alt and F1, the Whisker menu will be opened simply by pressing the Super Key. It's a nice little hack that just smooths over one of the small areas where you might miss a more fully featured desktop environment, and I thought one or more of you might find it useful. Are you still actually using XFCE, Will? Yeah, I am still using it. I had thought about moving to Mate, but I haven't been bothered to do that yet. So I'm I'm just going to stick with it, I think. My muscle memory now says super spacebar all the time. So it would take me a little while to learn the new simple um, super key only. But I might give it a go and see if I can learn it. Whereas for me, I'm just used to clicking and then typing. So again, muscle memory, I'm not really motivated to do that. But there might be some people who are moving from GNOME to XFCE maybe, and this might help motivate them. I'm surprised that you can be bothered to get the mouse and move it down to the bottom corner or top corner or wherever I have it. That seems like a very unnerdy thing to do. Well, I just have my hand on the mouse most of the time anyway, except when I'm typing. Could I admit a terrible thing that I've done? Um, this is an awful thing in macOS. You can't remap the space and uh, whatever command kit is to get up their spotlight equivalent. So I actually use my programmable keyboard to remap <laughs> that to the super key and space bar so that it works across both the machines I'm using. I feel terrible doing that. It should at least be the other way around. Surely you mean alt space bar and KDE, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, I still use alt and F2. I think I've mapped it to that in KDE. Oh, alt F2 for so long. Yeah. I've only recently got used to it. Well, I'm surprised that this is called K super key, but I don't see any cute dependencies on the uh, readme. Maybe the K stands for cool. <laughs> <laughs> Must do, yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Okay, Joe says, I also found that containers and firewalls can be surprising. This is with Podman and Firewall D. I think UFW is better with hard rules than Firewall D, but still scary. I documented my findings in a blog post. In short, unless you lock down the port to only the local host when running a container, Podman will add itself into a trusted zone available on any IP, making things like a database reachable from anywhere despite the set firewall D rules. It just activates another zone without any prompt or warning. 
really need to be careful with containers. That's quite shocking. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this was your issues that you had phone him. Yeah, it was. And I, I don't understand why the, I mean, the companies who make these things, I mean, okay, fair enough. Red Hat may say that they don't make these things, but like if you're employing a vast majority of these users, why are not the firewall D people integrating with the other people and going, yeah, let's fix that. And why is the UFW stuff not integrating with Docker? Because, I mean, we know people use Docker. We know people use UFW. That's the pushed firewall rule for Ubuntu systems. It just seems weird that they just like leave them out there. And it, the worst part is when you ask the system, are you firewall? It goes, oh, yeah, 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 totally, totally. <laughs> Fucking Jim. He'll be sitting there laughing with his IP tables only way to go things. And he's right, <laughs> but still, they are fucking awful. And if you want anybody that's not you to use them, good luck. Well, it is an argument for that, isn't it? Of actually learning the lower level and not abstracting it away. Ah, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's why we should never have nice things. We should only ever <laughs> use the horrible tools. <laughs> well, CRDX also got in touch regarding firewalls and containers. And they said, while listening to episode 201, I was relieved to find out that I was not alone in my surprise at discovering Docker's unexpected interaction with UFW and IP tables-based firewalls. I recently wrote a post about this issue with some possible solutions, and check the notes for the link. The TLDR is that you can still use UFW, but you also need to tell Docker to bind to the local interface so it stops exposing your containers to the world. For example, in docker-compose.yaml, or the command line where you might specify a port as 8080, you instead specify it as 127.0.0.1 colon 8080. Sounds like you've got some blog posts to read, Phelan. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fair, but it just, if I tell the firewall to block the port, it should just block the port. It shouldn't matter that it's in a secret hidden Docker container. That just annoys me about that whole thing. But anyway, yeah, no, it's fine. I use IP tables now. It's miserable, but it works. <laughs> all right, Gene says, have you all looked at session as an alternative to Signal? And if so, any thoughts? And Christopher said, I jumped ship from Signal last year when images were being sent to chats they didn't belong to. I didn't care much for their fix and ended up switching to Threema because Telegram didn't feel right. The network effect is really difficult, of course. It's a little harder with Threema because while it's open source, it does cost a bit of money to download. It works quite well, though. My family and friends and I tried XMPP with Conversations and then Matrix by way of Element, and they were so awful and unreliable for them that I almost lost them altogether on switching to anything but SMS. Hopefully Threema doesn't go to shit too, dot, dot, dot. Well, again, it all comes back to that network effect, doesn't it? I mean, Session, I hadn't even heard of. And I mean, Signal is obscure enough. Never mind obscure alternatives. Have any of you not heard of Session? No. 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 I, that's the flurry of keyboard typing when, we, uh, <laughs> when that was read out, I think, said it all. Uh, don't worry, I've edited that out so no one uh, heard that. <laughs> it's funny because I used to have an XMPP server back when I first got out of using Google on my really ancient phone. Like it, it was before the likes of Telegram and stuff. And I used one that still exists, apparently. I don't know how you pronounce it. I always pronounce it Prosody. I am, but it's got a weird hat on the O and God knows what that does to it. So I never had trouble with it. And I even, believe it or not, tried XMPP on the two Firefox shite show phones that I had from them, which were great. But yeah, it is really hard when nobody else uses it. 
that's why f- Telegram kind of was a nice compromise I found at the time. I don't expect it to be private, but yeah. Yeah, and they're doing all NFT bollocks and shit now. Like, And, and the, the experience seems to just get worse and worse. I think you should preface that by you saying that you use the crappy web client. It works fine if you use an application. All right, okay. But also on Android using the official client. Fuck knows how I did this. But it's like fucking multicolored animated colors all the fucking time <laughs> my my chats and i've worked out a way of fixing that after going to like browse themes edit current theme and then like set the colors to a proper just boring blue color then the next day i wake up and it's fucking back to just crazy colors again and i have no idea how to stop it doing that it it does it at least once a day and probably once every couple of days i get annoyed enough to fix it and then either later that day it sort of goes weird and crashes and i have to close it and restart it and then it's just back to crazy psychedelic colors man it's not even psychedelic colors it's like early 90s shit nft colors or something and it's really winding me up all i can hear is that nine cat theme tune every time that you <laughs> post a message yeah it's oh, it's horrible but uh I would post some screenshots, but you don't want to see any of my chats. They're just horrendous. And you don't want to see my notes to myself. It's all just incoherent gibberish. But uh, it, it just looks so bad. And I, I, I think I broke it by going into the themes or something. I also managed to break fucking Android's theme by changing my wallpaper from plain black to a cool photo that my friend Alex had taken. And even when I changed it to black, it was just this horrendous green color accents everywhere. I just just fuck technology at this point, quite frankly. <laughs> you need to use the open source version that's an F-Droid. It is different. It has been rebuilt. A lot of that stuff may be taken out. I've never had trouble like that. Yeah, but I'm a Taylor Swift sticker's going to work and stuff. Of course they will. We'll be fine. Mm, maybe I'll give it a go. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when, if my calculations are correct, we will be doing a wrap-up of the year. Jesus, don't say that. Yeah, followed by (laughs) predictions. So you'd better get your predictions hats on, chaps, because we'll be doing that shortly. There's still a chance we won't make it to the end of the year, don't worry. There's every chance, yes. But anyway, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. 